0: I want to read to you just the first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that in your great wisdom and in your plan, you gave a baby who would grow to be the most world-changing, history-shaping human who has ever lived. And I pray, Lord, as we reflect on the goodness of your son, Jesus, you would give fresh hope this Christmas in Jesus' name, Amen, Amen. Well, before I get into what I want to say to you guys, um, we wanted to give a little bit of an announcement, really, for those who are um, regulars at Grace and part of the church. Um, over the recent months, as you probably noticed, we'd um, getting a little bit more cramped in in this room, and so we, the leadership team guys, were just wrestling with what we were going to do next and what was kind of. The best way to continue to allow the church to grow, and what's the wise decision to take next. And we decided that um, as of the end of January, we want to start an evening service. Um, So at the moment, we currently meet mornings every day of the year, apart from Christmas. And uh, so as of the last Sunday in January, we're planning to start an evening service. And we were wrestling with whether to just move venues or what to do. Um, Actually, it's quite challenging finding Another venue in the area that could host us and that we could afford, and all those kinds of things. But we also felt that one of the strongest values we had when we started the church was that we wanted to be uh, and to forge a family, a community in the centre of London. And uh, we felt that with all the the experiences of the transience of London life, that that would be better served by multiplying uh, services rather than just trying to find bigger and bigger rooms to meet him. So. Um, that's just a little bit of good news for us, and we're excited about the new year and everything that's going to be happening in 2018. But anyway, I want to get into what I'm going to say to you guys this evening. I want to speak to you about the birth of hope. I think that um, hope is one of these things that you basically can't live without. You can't live for long in life without hope, with a sense of hope. There was, um, this came home to me very powerfully in my teenage years when in the church I was part of, there was an older couple who had a son who had grown incredibly uh, depressed, so depressed. Um, He he wasn't part of the church, they were new to the church, but he'd grown so depressed, and his mind had grown so darkened by the thoughts that he was having, that he'd become catatonic. He was hospitalized. It means that essentially he was non-responsive to communication and wouldn't articulate himself in any way. And my dad, who was a pastor at the time, went to visit him on a few successive occasions and just would speak to him. And as these few occasions wore on, this guy, Steve, went from being totally non-responsive to becoming responsive and eventually to becoming totally well, to the point where he um, became part of the church, uh, became, gave his life to Jesus, as we express what it means to become a Christian, Uh, later got married, had children, and he's well to this day. But if you ask my dad, what did he do when he went to speak to him? What made the difference? And he said, all I did was start speaking hope to him. It was the words of hope that began to change his life altogether. And if you think about your own experiences in life, you think about your darkest days, I think you probably agree with me that usually what makes days dark is when hope is absent. And your best days are the days when you feel full of joyful hope and optimism about what the future holds. And hope is is this thing you can't can't live without. But having said that, there are basically two kinds of hope in life. On the one hand, there's the hope which is empty, which is a kind of flawed or uh, a hope that will fail you in the end because it's not real. It's not based on something real, something substantial. I want to give you a couple of examples. I want to be very vulnerable with you for a moment. We're all friends in here. Um, but when I was in my mid-teens, um, I used to have gorgeous long hair that um, from the top of my head went down to my shoulders. And uh, such luscious hair that it was bleached blonde by the sun and it would flow in the wind when I went for runs. You know, this is... I was proud of my head of hair. It was, it was a thing to behold. Um, and, you know, even on one occasion, I remember a child looking up at me and asking its mother, is that a man or a woman? <laughs> it was a good head of hair. And uh, not so long back, in a kind of vain attempt to, desi- to rekindle the best days of my life, I, um, I bought a bottle of Head & Shoulders that was described as hair booster, and I uh, thought I'd try this shampoo out and uh, see what happens, see if it, it does the magic thing that it's supposed to do. And uh, little did I know, of course, that, it, w- it only works on the lower half of your face. So I was, I was clean shaven before this just all, just, just all came out of nowhere. So there are certain types of hope in life which are just flawed, failed. They won't work for you. Just a more serious example. Do you remember, Some of you won't remember this because you are too young. But I remember back in 1997 when um, uh, Tony Blair and the new Labour government were voted into power with an enormous landslide victory. They won more than a 160-seat majority in parliament. It was ridiculous what happened. And the night became a party for Labour. They had the song booming, um, Things Can Only Get Better. It was on the news uh, for days. Things Can Only Get Better with Tony Blair's grin (laughs) and that joy of, of victory. And of course, they didn't know that they were about to face one of the worst decades of recent history that within a few years, uh, the planes would hit the Twin Towers, they'd come crashing down, that we'd enter into a, a war in Iraq that would go on for over 15 years, that uh, Tony Blair himself would have to resign in shame you know, um, and hand over to Gordon Brown with the suspicion of you know, war crimes uh, or having led us into war, misled us in, in going to war. And then, of course, um, we went into a recession, a worse recession since the 1930s or something like that. And so everything about that things can only get better was utterly wrong, wasn't it? So there is hope in life which is, which is flawed. And all of us have experienced that. The romance that didn't, you know, didn't complete you or the job that wasn't the fulfillment you hoped it would be or whatever it is in life. Legoland. You ever been to Legoland? It's a complete <laughs> disappointment. Loads of things in life that are a huge disappointment. The flip side to that, though, the flip side to that is that there are There are hopes that are genuine and real and lasting, and I want to make the case for you that of anything you can hope in in life, Jesus is the most solid, lasting, and extraordinary hope of all. You remember how this passage just started? It said, those who walked in darkness have seen a great light. If there's a word that captures what Jesus' birth means, it is this word hope, and I want to... Trying to show you what I mean by talking about prophecy, uh, perfection, and promise. The hope as it was prophesied, the perfection of his life, and the promise that flowed from his life. And just to explain to you why I think this is the hope that changes the world. First of all, prophecy that his birth was foretold as the moment, the moment of great hope in, in history. In case you're not fully aware yet, Christmas is a celebration of the birth of Jesus. Around 0 AD. Uh, But prior to that, he came from the the country or the the nation of Israel. And Israel as a nation had had a couple of thousand years of history running up to the birth of Jesus. It was a a long story even up to that point. And when he arrived, like any other nation, they'd been through extraordinary highs and extraordinary lows. They'd been through um, incredible suffering as a people and uh, experienced the great tragedy of, of despair as a, as a people group. But all through their the couple of thousand-year history, there was a single thread of hope, which was what almost what gave the, the nation coherence, actually, was the hope of a coming Messiah or Savior, King, someone who would, who would actually be a, a ruler. I don't know if you guys have seen... Um, I'm sure you're cultured people so I'm sure you've read the books of the Lord of the Rings trilogy right so you know what I'm talking about if I mention this but in, in Gondor the city of the kings when the Lord of the Rings when that trilogy takes takes place Gondor is being led by a, a steward because the kings have disappeared off the scene but there is this hope this kind of prophetic hope of the return of a king to Gondor and it's kind of symbolized by this white tree that grows outside the palace that hasn't been in bloom For a long time, it's basically a dead tree. But there is this kind of prophetic echo that when the king returns, there'll be a new white tree in the courtyard. And really, that was the kind of feel in Israel's heart for all the running centuries, that when the king comes, things will be put right. And if you ask, what what put that idea in their minds? The answer is, was prophecy. That there were these prophetic predictions that were layered on top of each other over the running centuries. Now, I know that for some of you who maybe are coming from a more secular mindset and you don't believe in the supernatural, you immediately think, well, this is almost too, far, too much to believe. And besides, couldn't anyone just put their hand up and claim to be the fulfilling of these prophecies? And I'll grant you, a lot of people did. A lot of people, even at the time of Jesus, put their hand up and said, I'm the Messiah. Of course, we can't remember any of their names because they disappeared from the history books, but they existed. And even to this day, there are people who, who make that claim. You see around Israel today, you'll see posters of, of a, a particular rabbi whose followers claim that he is the Messiah. But you see, what, what makes Jesus unique then in the running history of these prophecies is, is the perfect alignment that all the arrows pointed to him. You ever seen one of those um, one of those trick shots that snooker players can do where they can tap a ball and it hits about 1,500 other balls until it finally pots the one in the pocket. You can see all kinds of amazing things on YouTube. Don't do it now. You'll get lost. <laughs> but the, the reason it works is because of the perfect alignment, isn't it? It's the same with, with the, uh, the key in your five-lever mortise deadlock at home. It doesn't, you can't have a key that looks similar because that key has to perfectly align with all five levers in order to, to rotate the lock. And so when you start to look at the prophecies about Jesus before he came, that began thousands of years earlier, you see how they all align and they point to this man. I can only give you the barest hint of what's in in the Hebrew scriptures, but it begins with God's word to the serpent in the Garden of Eden, that one day it says, the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, the child of the woman would crush his head. And then is born the idea that God's solution to the problem of the world is not an idea or a teaching. It's not technology, as we often think. It would be a person, a single person. A little bit later down, some centuries later on from there, Abraham is told by God that his child, his offspring, his descendant, would be the blessing to the whole world. A little bit further on from there, you You know, Abraham's family became 12 tribes, the tribes of Israel. We're told that he would come from the tribe of Judah. And then further on from there, you read about him being a descendant of David. It's even there in this passage in Isaiah, but it's all through the Old Testament, that he would be a descendant of that particular king, of David the king, that one of his descendants would reign on the throne. And so it it goes on, it unfolds with these kind of prophetic words. It tells us where he would be born. He would be born in Bethlehem. It tells us that he would be born to a virgin, that she would conceive and, and give birth. A, mi- a miracle child. It tells us that he would come from Galilee. This passage we read, Isaiah 9, it tells us that he would come from Galilee, which was you know, a random place for him to come from. It wasn't a special place. It's like saying that the Messiah would come from Birmingham or something like that. But he said he would come from Galilee, specified where he would come from. So all these things sort of align and come to this perfect alignment on the person of Jesus. And you ask, well, why does this matter? It matters because I think it kind of puts a little bit of a a responsibility on you as a person to really ask yourself what you make of this. That either on the one hand you look at it and say, well, people are gullible. And we've been gullible people for as long as we've been able to speak to each other and lie to each other. And this is all just a great big hoax. You know, we've been victim to massive hoaxes in recent history. Like, the, the tobacco companies told us that tobacco was actually healthy for you. I read one advert that said that not one single uh, case of throat irritation due to smoking camels, which may be true unless you count cancer as throat irritation. And a sugar ad that says that sugar keeps your energy up and your appetite down, which is billed as a healthy thing. Of course, it didn't tell you it also makes you obese and diabetic. But these things, people are gullible to all kinds of hoaxes, aren't they? And you say, well, maybe that's where, maybe that's where this whole Jesus thing fits, in that category of being a hoax. Or, or you look at it and think, well, this actually beggars, you can't believe that this could be made up. And it may be strange. It may be stranger than fiction. It may be stranger than stranger things. But this is actually something that happened. It happened in history. It was documented by people, and put down in the history books for our benefit. And so Isaiah tells us, for to us, a child is born, and to us, a son is given. 700 years later, it happened, and hope came into the world from darkness to light. That's the first thing I want to tell you about prophecy. The second is perfection, that Jesus was the perfect man, and in no way was he a disappointment, You think about all the people that we consider great in history. Every one of them ultimately has been exposed for their flaws, haven't they? I was just reading this week about, um, you know the radio presented, um, the DJ uh, Joe Wiley. She was in an interview talking about the fact that she'd met all of her heroes, basically, through her opportunities on radio. They'd come into her studio, she'd interviewed them. And she said "One of the most exciting and most disappointing experience of all was when she met Mick Jagger. And she describes it like this. She said, I'd done so much research. And he bowled into the studio and said, have we met before? I said, we hadn't. And he responded, oh, well, you'd be the one more likely to remember, wouldn't you? It's so withering, isn't it? It's so cutting to, to, to come in like that. And then she had to be all charming on on, on the radio. She said, as soon as the mic was off... He switched off as well and swept out again. And one of the things that you see in common with all the people that you you most admire is that there are these these profound flaws in the character. Winston Churchill was named the greatest Briton, wasn't he? Not so long back. And and yet, when you know a little bit about him, it, it turns out that he was actually deeply racist. And uh, he was responsible for many massacres of, of troops b- making bad decisions. And uh, he was constantly inebriated as well. He used to wake up in the morning and have a little bit of whiskey for breakfast. And some of you think that's one of the things in his favor. <laughs> I don't know. although you'd be the judge of that. Winston Churchill, Martin Luther King, that extraordinary man who led the civil rights movement. Some FBI documents came out about him not so long back, saying how he was, um, he was in and out of sexual relationships with people who weren't his wife. And you think well there's a man who we admire for so many reasons but there's a flaw isn't there a streak that runs in his character that somewhat tarnishes your image of the man at his nobility. <coughs> and the same is true for guys like you know a man like Gandhi. You think that man if anyone lived a pure life and fought for kind of uh, righteousness in the world. Gandhi's that guy. And yet it turns out that he was as racist as anyone else in and at the time in terms of his view of the caste system in India and spoke disparagingly of the kafirs or the lowest, um, the lowest caste in India as he described them. And you think, these guys, as much as you want to admire people, they keep disappointing you. And if that was true of people in history, it seems to have flooded over us in recent days, hasn't it, in the media? that you can barely for a moment hold someone up as being worthy of admiration before someone comes along and says something just horrible about the things that they've done. And you think, everything you thought you knew about that person is wrong. And if, it's not, if it doesn't come out now, it's going to come out in the future. And if it doesn't come out in the future, our great-great-grandchildren are going are to think we were moral monsters for admiring such people, and they're going to pull down their statues and rename the streets because they... They, they've changed their views of what's right and wrong. And yet, here's the, the weird thing about Jesus. Have you ever noticed that even his worst critics can't say a bad thing about him as a person? If you want to say something bad about Jesus, you have to make it up, which is what Dan Brown did in the Da Vinci um, Da Vinci Code. Thank you. Yeah. that <laughs> novel which some people seem to take as historical fiction, as historical, uh, as historical writing. And it was obviously just, it was about as true as Harry Potter, but he made up this story about Jesus being married and all this kind of stuff. People have to make stuff up in order to tarnish Jesus' reputation. And one of the things that's always struck me as a guy with brothers is that Jesus' own brother worshipped him. James, he was one of the leaders of the early church. Now, I've, I grew up with brothers, and Even if I was to raise the dead, the one thing that they would never say about me is that I'm divine. Because we've we've had too many fights and there's been too many wedgies to ever believe that I could be divine. But Jesus' brother was one of his followers. You think, what, what was it about him? His character, his purity, the amazing things that he did that he could persuade everyone around him that he lived the perfect life. And so you look at the names Isaiah gives him. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And ask yourself, do you know anyone who could carry those titles? In history, contemporary, anyone at all. If I was to give you those titles, wouldn't you go through life terrified of being exposed for the fraud that you are? When my wife and I travel on the airplane c never tells the airlines that she's a doctor because she doesn't want to be that person who's called on when someone's having a heart attack is there a doctor on the plane yes there is they look at the ledger and find dr c ann aslam she doesn't want to be that person she doesn't want to carry the weight of her title and the pressure of being on an airplane having to help you so good luck if you're sick when c's on a plane with you <laughs> but if you the thing is titles bring this weight with them and jesus jesus carried these titles with grace And not just with grace, but with believability. People looked at him and they were compelled. Not everyone, I'll grant you, but those who knew him best were most compelled that he really was worthy of these names. There's his perfection. Finally, there's the promise that flowed out from him. Jesus died. I don't know if you know the story, but he died. He died on a cross. He died by crucifixion. So this this boy grew to a man who was the child of prophecy, who lived the perfect life. People turned against him, and they killed him. They killed him brutally. They killed him in a horrible fashion. And maybe at this point you're thinking, well, if he was the child of hope, if he really was this extraordinary in history, doesn't his death destroy all of that? Doesn't it sort of put the whole thing to rest? And yet you look at what happened afterwards and you you know that the movement didn't just fizzle out when Jesus died. It should have done. The hope should have died with him. There's an amazing story um, at the end of Luke's gospel, one of the biographies, the narratives of Jesus' life. In the last chapter, there's a a story of two men who are walking on the road to another town called Emmaus. Emmaus. And they are downcast. They're depressed because Jesus has just been killed. And a third man comes alongside them and starts asking them, what are they talking about? And they're like, haven't you heard? Are you the only person who doesn't know what's just happened? They said, so Jesus of Nazareth, the one that we hoped, you know, this, the prophet, this amazing man was, was put to death. And then they say this, this extraordinary line. They say, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel the hope is past tense we had hoped that he was the one to redeem israel and if the jesus movement had ended if the story had ended with his death that's exactly where the whole thing the hope would have ended as well we had hoped that he was the one to redeem israel everyone would have gone back to their jobs as peter does he goes back to fishing and just got on with their lives but something happened to reverse that Something happened that caused the movement not only to continue, but to explode across the known world in the first century and then into the running centuries. And the only explanation that really makes sense is that these men saw him alive again, that he was raised from the dead. A lot of people might think, well, what evidence is there for that? And besides the written testimony, the New Testament's full of eyewitness testimony, men who saw him alive, and Paul talks about 500 people having seen him alive. And they name people, and their, their names are written in these books, and it's not, this, is not, this is not something that happened in a corner. Besides all of that, from your point of view, you also have the extraordinary benefit of, of hindsight, of looking at what's happened in the 2,000 years since these events took place. Hindsight is an amazing thing, isn't it? We all see clearly with hindsight. If you'd known what was going to happen to Bitcoin seven years ago, what would you have done with your life savings? Five pounds in 2010 would have been worth a four and a half million today, or probably more. It's exploded in the last few days, hasn't it, Bitcoin? So probably worth six or seven million pounds. How can the price of a McDonald's become six or seven million pounds in in seven years? Well, hindsight has the benefit of giving you that kind of clarity of vision. No one knows what's going to happen. But the Jesus movement, if you'd been around at the time, you would not have put money on it going anywhere. You would have thought, this is just a bubble that will burst. But not only did it gather pace, but it is gathering pace even to this day. So that when you look at Christianity as a global movement, there is nothing on the planet that rivals it in momentum and power. An influence across the many billions of people who now call Jesus Lord. And you ask yourself, why? How did that happen? And the explanation, you know, I, I think there's lots of things that just don't make sense about it. Christianity in so many ways is unappealing. There's a very high bar that Jesus calls for in terms of what it means to give your life to him. He says you need to surrender completely. You need to, he puts it, take up your cross. In other words, be willing to die to yourself so that you can follow him. And yet people are, are, are doing that all the time. Wherever you look at Christians, they're always the most uncool people in the room. There's very little that's appealing about Christianity. <laughs> it shuns force and, and offers choice. And yet despite these things, the movement is continuing to grow. And you ask yourself the question why, and I don't think you can explain it on any natural terms. I think the answer is right here in what Isaiah predicted. He says, of the increase of his government and of peace, in other words, of his rule in the world, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it, With justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In other words, the reason I understand that the Jesus movement wasn't wasn't just a kind of flash in the pan, a firework that went up and exploded and died out, but that it continues to grow is because God, in his zeal, to glorify his son, Jesus, is making that happen. And what does all that mean for you? I think in life you're going to face many, many disappointments. We all face disappointments, don't we? Hopes that, that, that kind of fall through our fingers. Things that we wished had become more for us than they actually turn out to be. And the future is full of extraordinary uncertainty. No one really knows what the next 50 years are going to look like when we have so much sort of language of doom hanging over us, you know, whether there's going to be some super bug that no antibiotic can kill that's going to wipe us all out or global warming or plastic in the oceans or, or uh, AI that's going to you know, the machines are going to rise up and take over. Whatever is going to happen, the world is full of this kind of fear and panic and dread of what the future might hold in the next 50 years or the next century. But the reason Christians always come back to Jesus is because they recognize in him somebody who is an unshakable hope. A hope that has been proved through the running centuries, was prophetically foretold, lived the most perfect life that ever lived. And now whose rule is based on the promise of the living God that it cannot end. And that is what it means to become a Christian, is to say, Jesus, I want to be in your kingdom. I want to place my hope on you. I want to believe in you. You alone are worthy of that. Let me pray. The guys are going to come and lead us in a couple more carols. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that in... In your goodness, in your grace, Lord, that the gift of your son changed the world. And no one can deny that. It wasn't just his life. It wasn't just his teaching. But also his amazing death and resurrection that began something that has not lost momentum ever since. And Lord, I pray that as we reflect on the extraordinary event of your birth this Christmas that the truth of who you are would become clearer to our minds than ever before as you show yourself to us. In your precious name we pray. Amen.